Hey, hello everybody! Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I am your host, Lindsay, and today I am doing something really, really ambitious, okay? This is something that I've been working on for a week, but it's going to be lasting at least the next two weeks. I'm hoping on this being a three-part series where I go super in-depth talking about the Beatles, okay? I could not justify doing one episode to the Beatles. Number one, they're my favorite band ever, okay? And they have 13 studio albums. How could I just do one episode? That just wouldn't be enough time. So I decided I'm going to break this up in three, and in each episode, I'm going to dive in really, 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 really deep, okay? Because I have to give it to them. I have to make sure that I do my due diligence with the Beatles, okay? Let's jump right into it. I'm going to first talk about the backstories of the four members. John was born October 9th, 1940 in Liverpool. His parents were Julia and Alfred Lennon. His father was a merchant seaman and he was often away from the family home. He pretty much grew up without his father around him. And his mother, Julia, had to raise John mostly on her own, but Julia had a sister who went by the name of Mimi, and she would help take care of John. So the story basically goes from his childhood that one day his father came home and he took John to Blackpool. Mimi and Julia had no idea where John went, and they were like, what the hell is going on here? We don't know where John is. And they found John at Blackpool on the beach. And it was at this point that his father said that he was going to New Zealand and he wanted to take John with him. Um, And Julia would just not let that happen. They were not going to let John leave and go to New Zealand. And so the story goes that his father made John, who was at this point four years old, decide who he wanted to live with, either his father or his mother. And this is a really traumatic experience for John. He's only four. Um, But it was at this point that Mimi just kind of stepped in and she cut through everybody and she just scooped John up and she took John and John went to live with Mimi and her husband, George, at 251 Menlove Avenue in Liverpool. And this is where John would grow up for the most part. And what was interesting, apparently, was that John didn't know growing up that Julia lived pretty close to Menlove Avenue. He had a really on and off relationship with his mother growing up as a teen. He had a stepsister after Julia um, got married again or was in another relationship. She had a daughter. So John had this half-sister or stepsister. um, And so he would go over there and Julia knew how to play the banjo. And so Julia would teach John how to play the guitar via her banjo, right? So he learned how to play the guitar with banjo chords, It wasn't until later that he learned how to play the guitar properly, but she was the first one to teach him how to play music, right? Growing up in Mimi's house, Mimi was really, really strict. She would not let John do anything with music. She would always tell him that he would not make a living being a musician, that he would fail pretty much. Um, But he was just out there doing his thing. He really loved Elvis Presley, and he loved all this music coming out from America with the kind of rockabilly, rock and roll music coming out, and he was all about that. So at some point, he started growing his hair longer, slicking it back, wearing the leather jackets and the jeans and the cool shoes, and he was just being what was called a teddy boy. 
He attended Quarry Bank High School in Liverpool, and he was considered pretty much the class clown. He had no problem cracking jokes, making people laugh, like just being really rude. By rude, I mean just making crude kind of jokes and things like that. He was totally on board with kind of having that shock factor. Uh, he loved that. And so, yeah, he was rambunctious and he wouldn't listen to his teachers. And he often would daydream in class. He would doodle and sketch during all of his classes. And he took this sketching a little bit further where he created his own school newspaper called The Daily Howl, like comic strips, I guess, with doodles and like weird, funny sayings and whatever. So he loved that. But yeah, at this point, he was just not having it at school. He was not really doing that well. He was failing his classes. He was doing all the bad things that kids do back then. What are you going to do about it? So John was really loving music and he wanted to buy a guitar, but Mimi would not do it. Mimi was just not a fan of John with music at all, right? So it was actually Julia, his mother, who bought him his first guitar for five pounds. And the stipulation was she would buy it for him, but that it would have to be sent to her house and not Mimi's house. Because obviously, if Mimi saw that there's a guitar in her house... She'd be like, what the fuck is this? And she would probably throw it away or something, you know what I mean? So that's kind of the basic rundown of the story. There's more that comes into play with John a little bit later, but that's just the basic setup of John's backstory. Now we're going to morph into Paul and his backstory. So Paul was born June 18th, 1942 in Liverpool. His parents are Mary and James McCartney. His mother was a nurse and his father was a salesman and volunteer firefighter. And his father, James, was also um, a musician too. In 1953, Paul was only one of three students to pass out of 90 on the 11 plus exam, which meant that he could attend the Liverpool Institute, which was kind of like um, a preppy grammar school kind of deal. And so a year later, he would meet George Harrison at school on their bus route. And George was a year younger than Paul. And Paul would say that he would kind of talk down to George because George was a year younger. But that's where Paul met George. His mother started making really good money as a midwife. And so because of this income, they could afford to live in a nicer house. And so this is where he would grow up on 24th Lynn Road. And in 1956, his mother died due to complications from breast cancer. And Paul was only 15. And this would mark his life forever. So traumatic at 15 to lose your mother. And so this is where that strong bond between John and Paul come together when they eventually meet up later, is they can bond over their shared experience of losing a mother at a really young age. And that's not a very common thing that I think most people can relate to. So they were already close, but then when John's mother ends up passing away, I'm going to get into that a little bit later, they form a close bond. So I mentioned that Paul's father was also a musician and a piano player. Paul would often watch his dad and he would learn how to play from him. You know, his father really wanted his children to get into doing music because he loved doing music. It was kind of like a cultural kind of neighborhood thing where if parties or gatherings were happening that they would start playing music and his father was always the one to start things off by playing the piano. So that's where Paul learned. But Paul said that he didn't want to take formal classes because he learned how to play by ear instead of playing or reading uh, the sheet music. He wasn't really one to read sheet music. So at this point, he learns how to play the piano. 
and he had given Paul a nickel-plated trumpet for his 14th birthday, but when rock and roll was becoming popular in England, Paul ended up trading it in for a famous acoustic guitar. And the first songs he wrote were I Lost My Little Girl and When I'm 64. So this is the thing, right? Paul would start writing music and a lot of these tunes that he would write when he was in his teens, he would shelf and later on they would turn up to be Beatles songs. So When I'm 64 is a song he wrote when he was 14, 15. So there you go. Paul was definitely inspired by Little Richard and he played Long Tall Sally as his first public performance at a holiday camp talent competition. So that is the basic rundown of Paul's backstory. Now we're going to shift right into George. So George was born February 25th, 1943 in Liverpool. He was the youngest of four children to parents Harold and Louise Harrison. His father was a bus conductor who worked as a ship steward for White Star Line, and his mother was a shop assistant. What I found really nice about George's upbringing was his family was really accepting of George's want to be a musician. They did not hold him back. They actually really encouraged it. And what was really cute was his mother in particular was really extremely supportive of George wanting to pursue music. And she had her own love of music. Um, It was actually said that when she sang, she would sing so loud that it would rattle the windows of their house and their neighbors would be kind of jolted like, oh my God, what's going on? She just really loved music and she loved to sing. And it was also said that when she was pregnant with George, she would actually listen to a radio station that would play Indian music. So you have to think like, was this always ingrained in him because she started to play Indian music? She did this because she hoped that by playing Indian music with the nice kind of sitars and things that it would relax the baby inside of her. So who knows? That's really kind of interesting, that connection. So George would also go on to pass his 11 plus exam, and this is where he also attended the Liverpool Institute along with Paul. The school offered a music course, but he was disappointed to learn that the program left out guitars. For some reason, George said that, you know, why would they offer a music course, but they would leave out guitars? Like, what are they afraid of, you know? In early 1956, he said that he had an epiphany when one day, He was out riding his bike in the neighborhood and he happened to hear Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel playing in someone's house. And he said that this was what started his fascination with rock and roll music. It always is. I think Elvis is like the breakout, um, like the gateway for rock and roll music back in the day, especially in Britain when it just came over to Britain. It was like a whole new world because at this time, you know, skiffle music was coming about and uh, the Mercy Beat kind of thing that was happening in Liverpool was starting to take its form in the later 50s. But yeah, rock and roll played a huge part of the formative years here in Liverpool music in the 50s. George was one of those people that just loved Elvis Presley a lot. You know, his father at first was a little apprehensive about George's musical ambitions, but he eventually relented and he gave George a gift of a Dutch Eggman flat top acoustic guitar that cost about three pounds or the equivalent of 90 pounds today. So what was interesting is uh, one of George's father's friends taught him how to play a couple of songs on the guitar and he eventually formed his own skiffle group called The Rebels with his brother Peter and their friend Arthur Kelly. And that's where we're going to leave it with George's backstory. But now, okay, listen, is it wrong of me to say 
or to assume that we all kind of put Ringo on the back burner when we're talking about the Beatles. Like, I think when we think about the Beatles, we put John and Paul in the forefront, right? And because Ringo's a drummer, he's more in the background. And so we attribute Ringo to kind of just staying in the background. But listen, I don't know why we have not made a biopic about Ringo's life because, oh my God, this kid nearly died. He was so sick during his childhood. Ringo's life story, I think, is a lot more interesting and a lot more compelling than what I've heard about John's backstory. I have heard John's backstory a million and one times, and so I know it. And it's tragic, of course, what happens with John. Ringo is on a whole other level, right? Let's just jump right into it. You are not going to believe some of the stuff Ringo went through, okay? Ringo was born Richard Starkey on July 7th, 1940 in Liverpool. His parents were bakers or confectioners. Their names are Richard and Elsie Starkey. His mother was a really big music fan and she loved to dance with her husband, especially swing dance. That was a favorite of theirs. At some point, though, his father began to lose interest in the family and he would spend hours or even days out at the pubs drinking and dancing and living his best life but ignoring his family. So... Ringo grew up in a really bad part of Liverpool. I would probably say most of Liverpool is the bad part of Liverpool. But Ringo really grew up, I would say, destitute is the right word. So they moved in 1944 to a slightly, but not much, slightly better neighborhood. But after this move, his parents got divorced. And so Ringo was about four when his parents got divorced. Ringo has said that he has no real memories of his father, like his father never made an attempt to bond with his son. So, you know, he's like, whatever, peace out, dad. But so after finding it difficult to raise Ringo on her own, on just the child support payments, Elsie took on jobs like cleaning houses and becoming a barmaid to help pay the bills. And so this is where things start to take a really bad turn for Ringo at age six, Ringo developed appendicitis. So he goes to the hospital and he undergoes a surgery where they removed his appendix, but this surgery goes wrong. He nearly died three times during the surgery, but even after the surgery where he was recovering, he developed periantitis that caused him to fall into a coma that lasted for days. And that's really scary. You could probably never come out of a coma at some point. You know, it's it's really, really lucky that he lived. I'm not even lying. Like, it's so fortunate that he ended up living. But his recovery process took him one year because at the six-month period, he accidentally fell out of his bed and he opened up his stitches again. So he had to stay for a following six months. So it took him an entire year to recover from the surgery. And, you know, he was away from home spending his recovery at the Liverpool Myrtle Street Children's Hospital. And he was discharged in 1948. And when he was discharged, his mother let him stay home, which caused him to miss school. And he already missed school a lot already. So he was falling behind his peers. He eventually would kind of go back to school. He went to Dingvale Secondary School and he took an interest in arts and drama as well as a mechanics course at school. But Unfortunately, he just was so far behind his peers academically 
that he was unable to qualify for the 11 plus exams that were a requirement for attending grammar school. So he couldn't actually learn to read or write until he was nine because of all the time that he missed, you know, going to school and learning because he was sick in the hospital. His lack of education and illiteracy made him feel alienated from his friends. This is not where it stops for Ringo. In 1953, he contracted tuberculosis, and we don't know what contracted this. We don't know. It could have been the Liverpool air. It could have been him smoking cigarettes. Like, we don't really know. But he contracted tuberculosis, and he was sent to a sanatorium where he spent the following two years there. But in an effort to keep their patients from falling bored and to keep up with their motor skills so they don't lose those motor skills, the doctors encouraged their patients to join the hospital band. And this is where Ringo was first exposed to music in a big way and, most importantly, to drums. He was like, listen, any other instrument, they could not get me to play because I was always attracted to the drums. Drums is just what he loved to do. He would get a wooden bobbin that he would strike against the cabinets on his bed to create like a makeshift Okay. He didn't have an actual drum drum until a lot later. So he would just bang on everything. He would take bits and pieces of whatever and just bang on stuff to kind of create that drum beat. And so this is where his deep fascination with drumming first began. In April 1954, his mother remarried an ex-Londoner named Harry Graves. And Harry was a big fan of big band music. And he introduced Ringo to this music as well. And this was like another big revelation to Ringo. He was so obsessed with this music, he just could not get enough. Like I mentioned, he didn't qualify for his 11 plus exams, right? At this point, Ringo just kind of wanted to stay home and listen to music while he was kind of working on his drums. He didn't want to stay there anymore. He didn't want to go to school. He just kind of quit. But... At some point, you know, you have to make a living, right? And so he decided, okay, I'll go into the workforce and see what jobs are out there for me. But unfortunately, he was too weak to do most of the kind of typical jobs back then that Liverpool would have, like a lot of factory kind of jobs. He just wasn't cut out for that because also he didn't have an education to get a better job. And he was really, really weak physically from his sickness. So he was unable to really get a job that he wanted, but he really was looking for just an opportunity to get some warm clothes on his back and to keep himself alive. So he eventually held a railway worker's job for a short period of time in an attempt, again, just to like get some warm clothes on his back, just to get something going for himself. So this job came with a suit for all the employees, but he was only given a hat and no uniform. So what the hell is that going to do? But also, he failed their physical exam and he was eventually laid off, but he was granted unemployment benefits. He then managed to find work as a waiter on a day boat that traveled from Liverpool to North Wales. But interesting, it's kind of funny. He feared that he would get drafted into the military if he stayed on, so he eventually quit that job. He didn't want to give the impression to the Royal Navy that was on the ship that he was good for seafaring work because obviously he really wasn't. It was just a job for him. And at this point, he realized that if he didn't want to be fearing for his life every time he was walking around in Liverpool, that he had to join a gang. 
And he said this was pretty typical back in the day. You know, you would either get jumped by another neighborhood of gangs or something bad would happen to you. So it was pretty commonplace that most people, most kids would join a gang. And so this is where he was in this teddy group, this teddy boy gang, and he was not really happy. Obviously, this isn't what he wanted to do. And he really wanted to get away from Liverpool. That was his main priority. He couldn't do anything yet because he had no money. He had limited resources. He couldn't find a job. In 1956, his stepdad did give him a job as an apprentice mechanic at a factory that made equipment for schools in Liverpool. So awesome. He found a job. All he has to do is just work on his apprenticeship for five years. Then he can move up in the chain at the factory. Awesome. So while he worked at this factory, he befriended Roy Trafford, who introduced him to skiffle music. And Ringo was like, end it. I'm done here. Skiffle music is where it's at. The two of them began to practice making skiffle music in their work cellar during their lunch break. And soon enough, Ringo brought his friend Eddie Miles into the band and they eventually became the Eddie Miles Band. They renamed themselves at some point calling themselves the Eddie Clayton and the Clayton Squares. Ringo would use a thimble to rake across a washboard to create a primitive rhythm and groove. Again, Ringo did not have the money to get himself a proper drum kit, but this would come later. On Christmas 1957, his stepfather gave Ringo a secondhand drum kit. And this wasn't like the most fancy of drum kits. It was your basic drum kit. It had a snare drum. It had a bass drum and a makeshift cymbal made out of a trash can lid. You work with what you got, okay? So this drum was the first big step that helped elevate Ringo's skills while the band was booking actually quite prestigious gigs. And listen, again, I think the whole thing of we kind of like overlook Ringo as an important character in this group, or maybe that Ringo isn't maybe the best drummer ever. At this time, I have to let you know, Ringo was really sought after as a drummer. He was really good in Liverpool. He was one of the best. He was really talented and people were just like clamoring to get him in their group. So when skiffle started to phase out in 1958, rock and roll started to take over. And at some point in 1958, Ringo joined the Liverpool skiffle group called Texans led by Al Caldwell. And they wanted Ringo to join because they were looking for someone who had a drum kit so that they could go from being one of the best skiffle acts in Liverpool to a fully-fledged rock and roll group. And that's where Ringo came in. Ringo was all about the rock and roll. He had the drum kit. He was like, right, let's go. Let's make music, boys. Come on. And this is where they started to change their name and they became Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. It was around this time, too, that he started going by the name Ringo because of the many rings he wore and because the name had a Western influence. Ringo was kind of all about that too, so it, it just fit. So now Ringo was finally known as Ringo. So in 1959, he had gotten engaged to his longtime girlfriend, Jerry. And at this point, Ringo was working during the day and he was playing gigs at night as well as taking his apprenticeship classes too. So he was doing a lot of stuff to propel himself forward so he could do what he always wanted to do, right? So a year later in 1960, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes had become one of Liverpool's best bands. I'm talking they were so popular and Ringo was so sought after as a drummer. 
So the Hurricanes was offered a three-month stay at a holiday camp in Wales. And at first, Ringo was really hesitant to leave his mechanic job and his fiance, Jerry. You know what I mean? He, he wasn't really sure if that's what he wanted to do. His fiance, Jerry, was actually fine with his drumming, but she did want him to keep finishing his apprenticeship so that he had something to fall back on. He only had one more year left until he could further ascend on the, on the mechanic side of things. But listen, Ringo, he was looking for his big break away from Liverpool. He wanted to be in music. He wanted this big break for himself. And so he really thought about it for three months. Everyone around Ringo was telling him, you would not make it as a musician. If you go on this trip, it'll be the biggest mistake you'll ever make. Like they were really trying to make Ringo settle in Liverpool. But eventually Ringo was like, listen, I can't do that. That's not who I am. I have to go on this trip. Like this trip is what I've always wanted to do for my music career. This is the big shot that I need. And so he eventually decides I'm going. He did tell his fiance one way or another, listen, you can wait for me if you want, but if you don't, whatever. And he goes on this trip. And this trip led to other opportunities like performing at a U.S. Air Force base in France, which I guess Ringo wasn't a fan of. But, you know, when they returned home to Liverpool, Ringo was so excited as his future as a musician. He knew that he made the right choice. Like, yes, finally, this is the big break in music I've always wanted and I can do what I want to do. He broke off his engagement to Jerry when he came back. He was like, right, I'm done. And he bought himself a little car with the money he had earned so that he could have a place to transport his drums on. So he wouldn't have to go on the bus and like haul all of his stuff on the bus and not have to worry about people stealing his drum kit. So he bought himself a little car and uh, he pursued music with the Hurricanes. But the Hurricanes also got the chance to go to Hamburg, Germany. And that's really huge because the Beatles also went to Hamburg, Germany at the same time. And again, I really need to stress this point to you, right, that we shouldn't um, put Ringo on the back burner. Ringo was so talented and so sought after as a drummer. Rory Storm was top billed above the Beatles, okay? We think so highly of the Beatles, and that's true. But at the time, Rory Storm was literally the best of the best that came out of Liverpool at the time. All right, so now that we learned a bit about their backstories, now we're getting into the formation of how the Beatles came together and their rambunctious journey in Hamburg. Let me tell you, it's a lot of stuff, okay? So John and Paul, they were to meet each other at a church fete in July 1957. John, at this point, created a skiffle group with some of his school friends, and they named themselves the Quarrymen. So at this church fete, Paul, he meets John. He's like, hey, you guys are really, really good. You know, I play guitar as well. And he's like, all right, show me. So Paul plays Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock. And it was said that like Paul knew all the lyrics. He was really impressing John because John was struggling a lot to remember the lyrics to his own songs, right? So he's like, wow, Paul remembers the lyrics to the song. He's doing like everything right on the guitar. Like this is really impressive. So John brings on Paul to join the band. And then later on, John and George and Paul, they get together. Paul's like, hey, I got my friend George. He plays guitar. Can we bring him into the band? At first, they weren't sure because George was the baby of the group, but 
1958, the three met one night on a bus going through Liverpool, and at the top of the double-decker bus, George played a song called Raunchy to them. George just, like, blew their minds. Also, a few months later, on July 15th, 1958, this is where John's mother, Julia, ends up getting killed in a car accident after one night when she leaves Mimi's house. After his mother's death, John was such a different person. He started acting out in fits of blind rage. He would get angry. He would get spiteful. He would get into fights a lot. But again, this is where John and Paul bonded a lot closer because Paul lost his mother too. So Paul really helped to ground John a lot more. And also, Paul was the one to teach John about proper guitar chords because, again, like, John knew how to play the guitar via banjo chords, which is not correct. So Paul was really helping John come back to earth a little bit more, if you will, so. And because of his behavior, John had failed his O-level exam at school. But through a bit of help from his Aunt Mimi and the headmaster at Quarry Bank, he eventually got accepted into the Liverpool Art College because John loves art. It's here at college that he would meet two people that were to heavily influence his life. First, he met his future wife, Cynthia Powell. The two of them had classes together. She was the quiet, innocent, sweet, good student. She was diligent. Like, she was, you know, she was very sweet, right? And John was the opposite, okay? I guess opposites attract at this point. You know, he he was flirting with her and they liked each other, but John was like, listen, Sin, you'd be even better looking if you dyed your hair blonde like Bridget Bardot. And what does she do? She dyes her hair blonde. John was like, okay, let's go, girl. Let's start dating, okay? So they begin dating at college. And it was also a college where he was to meet his best friend, Stuart Sutcliffe. And Stuart was a very prolific painter. He was really, really, really talented. He plays some of the biggest parts in the formation of the Beatles. I really don't think that a lot of people know about Stuart Sutcliffe at all. So I'm going to tell you some great things about Stuart Sutcliffe coming along, okay? He really sets the precedent for how the Beatles are when they become popular, okay? So we got to give it to Stuart. But anyway... So that's where he meets Stuart and Cynthia at college. So by this point, John, Paul, and George were performing under the name Johnny and the Moondogs. And they were playing shows anywhere they could. They were trying to get their name out there. One day, Stu had sold one of his paintings. And with the money he had earned from the purchase, John persuaded Stu to buy a bass guitar and join the band. Stu was like, me? Join the band? I can't fucking hold a note. I can't play. What do you mean join the band? And John's like, listen, I'm the leader of the band and you're my best friend. Buy a bass guitar and join the band. I don't give a damn if you can't play. Just join the band. And Stu's like, okay. So he buys a bass guitar and he becomes a member of the group by January 1960. Stu suggested that they change their name to the Beat Owls, B-E-A-T-A-L-S. And this was a reference to Buddy Holly and the Crickets, you know, kind of like a lot of bands, I guess at the time, were coming out with band names using animals. And so they were like, Beatles, let's do that because Mercy Beat, Beatles, you know. So they ended up using that version of the name for a while until they became the Silver Beatles. And then they eventually went by 
the Beatles, as we know, officially in August of 1960. So they had an unofficial band manager by the name of Alan Williams, who was a club owner in Liverpool, and Alan Williams secured the Beatles a Hamburg show, or more so, they secured the Beatles a three-month residency. So how they ended up getting Pete Best is an interesting one, and it's pretty funny, right? So the Beatles had played before a few shows at Pete Best's mother's club named the Casbah Coffee Club, and this was in the cellar of his house. So Pete Best knew about the Beatles. The Beatles knew about Pete Best. They knew that Pete was a drummer. Paul was the one that actually invited Pete to play drums for the Beatles on their Hamburg trip. This was actually the night before they were about to go on their Hamburg trip, and they arrived in Hamburg on April 17th, 1960. And they found themselves kind of out of their element, and where they were staying was in the red light district. And another kind of big thing about the Beatles at this time when they went into Hamburg was they ditched the kind of uh, shirt and tie that they would wear to their gigs in favor of wearing leather pants, leather jackets, and cowboy boots. So they fit right in to the Hamburg scene. They were really, really cool looking. They just did not give a fuck. They were having a great time. So they were under a three-month residency by club owner Bruno Koschmeider, and he let the Beatles stay in the Indra Club where it had a little space where they could stay, and this Indra Club was converted from a movie theater, so it had like a movie theater kind of projection thing inside, so most of the time they would get woken up by this movie theater projector coming on with these movies and stuff. They'd be like, what the fuck is going on here? So eventually they ended up moving to the Kaiser Keller Club, and this is where they would meet Rory Storm and the Hurricane. So during their stay, they kind of went around to different clubs and they took a drug that's called Preludin. It's like an upper, basically. So you would take the drug and they would supply this drug to the Beatles because they'd be playing all night. They'd have to take uppers and downers to stay up and then the downers, you know, to go down again. So they were like living on these drugs. So they were just playing night and day, all these hours, just crazy, crazy, crazy hours. So in October, like I mentioned, they met Rory Storm and the Hurricane at the Kaiser Keller because the Beatles and the Hurricanes were on the same bill. And Ringo was making the best impression on the Beatles. He was really funny. He was cracking jokes with them. They loved Ringo. And actually, they weren't getting along with Pete Best at all. Pete Best was kind of the loner. He would stay in his own corner. He wouldn't crack jokes. He was kind of moody and serious. And he wasn't even a great drummer to begin with. Sorry, Pete, but it's true. And Ringo was a really sought-after drummer, and the Beatles were like, hey, why don't we get Ringo in the group? But that was just kind of talk amongst them. That didn't happen until a lot later. And on some occasions, actually, when Pete was sick, Ringo would fill in for him on some of the Beatles' performances, which is really cool because that is an early incarnation of the Beatles as we know them. So while the Beatles were in Hamburg, they met two people that were to influence them throughout their whole career. The first was photographer Astrid Kircher, and she had a friend named Klaus Vormann. 
who was an artist. They all took a liking to Klaus and to Astrid, but Stu was the one that fell for Astrid really, really hard. Um, Astrid actually offered to take photographs of Stu just to kind of get a model, right? <laughs> Stu actually kind of became Astrid's muse, if you would, because she was attracted to him. He was really good looking. Unfortunately, he was a really shit guitar bass player, okay? Paul was so not cool that Stu was up there. He couldn't play, but Stu was really artistic and he just fell in love with Astrid right away. Stu kind of had that like James Dean look about him. If you look up photos of him, he had that quintessential 50s, 60s kind of bad boy look about him. Not too long after, Stu proposed marriage to Astrid and the two of them were engaged. So when Bruno, the club owner who was giving the Beatles their three-month residency, when he caught word that the Beatles had been performing shows at this rival club called the Top 10 Club, he was like, oh, hell no, you are not doing this to me. Who do you think you are? So because George is the baby of the group, George was lying and saying that he was older than he really was because they were staying in a really seedy part of Hamburg. So he was like, yeah, I'm 18 or whatever. When he was really, I think, about 16. So Bruno, he reported on George. He snitched, okay, to the authorities and said George was working underage and he can't stay here. He's got to go. So George was arrested by the police and he was deported in November back to Liverpool. And only a week later, Bruno had Paul and Pete arrested for arson. This is a weird story. So Paul and Pete one night really, really smashed, okay? They set a condom on fire and it caused a fire, okay? And so Bruno was like, get these ruffians out of here. They spend three hours in jail and then they got deported back to Liverpool. And eventually it was just John and Stuart left. So John eventually returned to Liverpool in December. But Stu stayed behind in Germany because he was engaged to Astrid and he wanted to build a life with her. He wanted to stay in her house where in the attic he had set up like a kind of makeshift painting studio and he wanted to take painting classes. And so he was really establishing a life for himself. And Paul was not complaining because Paul was like, yes, I can finally be the one to play bass for the band. So there you go. Stu was left behind and the rest of them went back to Liverpool. Um, and in between the following two years, they ended up going again to Hamburg for another residency. And this was the time on their second trip to Hamburg that Astrid had cut Stuart's hair into what we know now as the beetle mop top hairstyle. Because you have to remember, they were wearing those kind of Elvis pompadour quiff uh, slick back hairstyles that were really popular. And this kind of mod haircut came about from Astrid because that's kind of what they were wearing. They were kind of a part of that artistic mod scene. And so Astrid gave it to Stu. Stu was like, hey guys, what do you think of my hair? And eventually they were like, yeah, that's great. So they all adopted this haircut. And it's what we know as the Beatle mop top haircut. So in 1961, the Beatles were signed for a short while with Polydor Records, where they released their first single called My Bonnie. And they ended up going back to Liverpool after this short stay in Hamburg. 
and when they went back, they were so popular in Hamburg that it had actually like ricocheted over back into Liverpool. So people were really starting to say word of mouth, kind of passing around like, hey, have you heard about the Beatles? Have you heard about their new song, My Bonnie? Have you heard, you know? So when they came back to Liverpool, they started performing at the Cavern Club on Matthew Street. And this is where Brian Epstein comes into play. So a really, 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 really brief intro on Brian Epstein. He went to acting school and he was doing a bit of that, but then he dropped out. And then he was conscripted into the army and then he was released. And then when he came back, um, he started working at his family's record store. And this was a really well-known record store in Liverpool. And so Brian started taking over as manager of this record store. And he was hearing all this word about Beatles, 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 Beatles. And eventually some customers started coming into the store and they were asking like, hey, do you have my Bonnie by the Beatles? And he was like, who are the Beatles? I keep hearing about them. And one of his friends in the industry said, Brian, you got to check them out. They play at the Cavern Club all the time at like lunch. You got to check them out. So when Brian heard about this, he rang up the Cavern Club and he said, hey, I'm a record store owner. And, and let me just say, Brian was really well known in Liverpool because of this record store. So he was really famous in Liverpool. So when he called up the Cavern Club to set up a time and place where he could kind of get past the queue and go into the club to see them perform, they were like, yeah, Brian, absolutely. That sounds great. So he gets to see them at the Cavern Club one day. And another person <laughs> that comes into play here is a 15-year-old Maureen Cox, who would be known as Ringo's first wife. So she was a hairdresser in Liverpool, and she noticed Ringo one day kind of walking around Liverpool, and she was like, oh my god, like, I have to marry this guy. <laughs> she was smitten about him. And so during one of these performances at the Cavern, Maureen and Maureen's friend were there, and her friend dared her to kiss Paul after the show. So she ends up not only kissing Paul, but she kissed Ringo offstage. And that's where they formed a relationship, and Ringo and Maureen started dating. I just wanted to add that in there. So Brian, he goes into the Cavern Club one day, and he sees them perform. And he, right away, he knew there was something so special about them he saw star quality in them. He knew that this was one of the biggest bands. And so for weeks, Brian would make daily visits to go to the Cavern to see the Beatles play. The Beatles knew who Brian Epstein was. And so, you know, everyone kind of knew each other and they formed, you know, a friendship. So Brian thought one day, hey, maybe I should manage the Beatles part time while I'm working at the record store. So... <laughs> This is really funny. So uh, Brian rings up Alan Williams to ask, like, hey, are you still in the realm of the Beatles? Are you still managing them? Like, what's going on there? Alan was like, nope, I cut ties with them. But Alan warned Brian to, quote, not to touch them with a fucking barge pole. Alan apparently had this hang up about the Beatles because... One time during a concert in Hamburg, the Beatles refused to pay some fees that they owned. Brian was like, I don't care. I'm going to manage the Beatles anyway. 
So Brian became their official manager in 1962, and his very first move was to set them free from their short contract with Polydor back in Germany. So there was a deal made between the Beatles. You know, okay, the Beatles could be set free from their Polydor records on one condition. Polydor wanted the Beatles to have one last recording session in Hamburg. So, okay, not a problem. The Beatles fly to Hamburg, and at the airport, when they get to Hamburg, they're met with Astrid, and she's there, and she is sullen, and she looks like she's been crying. Astrid's like, John, Stu is dead. And John's like, what? What do you mean Stu is dead? And she's like, he died of a brain hemorrhage. And so this is the thing about Stu's death. We still don't 100% know to this day what caused this brain hemorrhage. There's a story that seems to maybe make sense where one day um, in the early days of the Beatles playing in Hamburg, Stu got into a fight with some boys um, after the show and one of them hit Stu so hard that he hit his head on the cobblestone streets and ever since then, he started having little seizures um, and, and bad headaches and stuff that would, you know, cause him to just be in so much pain. But one day, out of the blue, he just had this episode, and he starts hemorrhaging, and he dies. And he's young. If I'm remembering correctly, he was about 21 or 22. He was very young. So Stuart dies. And at this point, the Beatles, namely John and George, they go up to the attic of Astrid's house where they saw Stu's painting studio. And Astrid started just taking photos. She was in the flow. She was taking photographs. John and George looked really, really, really sullen. They were like half lit by the window. And these photographs would later on be used as inspiration for one of the album covers. I think we all know of that, but I'm going to save that for later. Stu died and John was also never the same. He wasn't the same from his mother dying and he wasn't the same from Stuart passing. That was his best friend and he died so tragically and um, yeah, absolutely horrific. So the Beatles, they return home to Liverpool after some time and Brian's first instinct was to set the band up onto a record label. After the Beatles had an audition with Decca Records, they rejected the band saying that rock and roll was on the way out. Little did they know they were so wrong about that, but producer George Martin took over and he signed the group with EMI's label Parlophone. So George Martin takes on the Beatles and woo, this is where they have their first recording session with George Martin at Abbey Road Studios on June 6, 1962. It was also around this time, in July, that Cynthia, John's girlfriend, found out that she was pregnant. She was like, I'm pregnant, what the hell do I do? Because at this time, there was no way you could have a baby out of wedlock. That was so frowned upon. She would probably be ostracized. There was no way that that could happen. So John was like, okay, we got to get married. That was the natural progression. So they got married and they got married on August 23rd, 1962. And so as the Beatles were really starting to form this fan frenzy around them at this time, this is where Brian implemented that all of the Beatles never talk about 
or publicize any of their relationships because Brian thought that if the girls, the fans found out that the Beatles were <laughs> taken, that it would ruin the illusion. You know what I mean? Like he wanted the fans to stay as hooked as possible and that they might not be as popular if the fans were to hear that their beloved Beatles were no longer available, which is like so stupid. But that's what he decided. So now back to these recording sessions, right? So George Martin, he was like, Pete Best fucking sucks. <laughs> we have to get someone else. And so it was commonplace at this time where if a band was recording, you could get session instrumentalists, like drummers, session guitarists, whatever, to come in and fill in a void if you needed somebody to come in. And so Martin suggested that they hire a session drummer instead. And the group was like, listen, we are already thinking about Ringo Starr. And at this time, Ringo is having a good time with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, but Ringo knows that the Hurricanes are not progressing any further, and he knows that he needs to move on, but, you know, he kind of can't. He's stuck. So Ringo is with the Hurricanes. The Beatles are in a position where they could get rid of Pete Best, so they tasked Brian Epstein with firing Pete. Apparently, Brian didn't give a reason. He just said, hey, Pete, get your shit. You're, you're out of here. <laughs> so Pete's like, what do you mean? What happened? Anyway, Ringo comes on. He's like, yeah, woo, I can finally be an official member of the Beatles. Woohoo. So awesome. So Ringo is now a part of the Beatles. And on September 4th, they had a session of recording Love Me Do with Ringo on drums. But George Martin was still a bit kind of unsatisfied with that recording, so they brought on drummer Andy White for the band's third week in the studio to record Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and P.S. I Love You. And I just want to say this too because I think it's kind of important to keep note of this. Back around this time, albums aren't how we think of them now. Albums were not thought up as concepts. Albums back then was all about just putting out songs, putting out singles. So an album was really considered or thought of as a collection of singles. So that's kind of why some of the Beatles' early albums maybe didn't have a, a flow or, you know what I'm saying? It's just kind of like that's what they were thinking of. They were just thinking of an album as a collection of singles. So this is what they were doing with their first album, Please Please Me, and a few of their earlier albums, too. So by 1963, the band agreed upon all four members contributing vocals for their future albums. And this is where John and Paul officially set up the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership. So Brian suggested that in order to maximize their commercial appeal, that they start acting a bit more professional on stage, i.e. no smoking, no swearing, and maybe um, ditch the leather and wear some nice clothes. So that's where they started wearing the suits on stage. And they present themselves a bit more professionally. And I just wanted to give this cool little bit of information before I start talking more about their first album, Please Please Me. So I'm sure we all are familiar with the Beatles logo. It's very popular. It's ingrained in everyone's mind. Maybe you've had the thought to yourself, how did that logo come about? Well, this is the story. So the initial logo design was actually done by artist Terry O'Hara, 
who created it based off of a drawing that Paul made. You know, they're called the Beatles. So Paul created this logo where the B had antennas and it was like a curly Q kind of B uh, shape and it didn't stick. It was like, um, that's a bit kind of gimmicky. So they left it out of that. So one day in 1963, Brian and Ringo were out looking for a drum kit for Ringo. And when they were at this store in London, Ringo happened to spot a drum kit that he wanted. And this store was Drum City in London. And he was like, I need to have this drum kit, please. Thank you. So the story goes, Brian didn't want to pay for the drum kit. And he was talking to the store owner, Ivor Arbiter, to strike some kind of deal. Like, hey, I don't really want to pay for this. Can we like come to some kind of arrangement, please? The store owner, Ivor, was telling Brian that, okay, in exchange for Ringo's old drum kit, which was a premier drum kit, that Ivor wanted the name of the drum, which was called Ludwig at the time, to be on the base head of this new kit. Because at the time, Ivor had just become the exclusive retailer for Ludwig drums, and he wanted the promotion on the kit. Even though the Beatles weren't really super popular at this time, he just wanted that promotion. So Brian agreed if the Beatles' name could also be put on the kit. And he said, okay. So Ivor was the one to sketch this idea of the Beatles logo. And Brian said the only request was that the word beat in the name was to be emphasized in however way. So Ivor quickly sketched this idea of making the B larger and dropping the end of the T. Brian loved it, and Ivor only got five pounds for the idea. And that's how the logo came to be. Pretty simple, but that's where it came from. All right, so now we're going on to their first album, Please Please Me. So they released the single of the same name, and it was really, really popular. So seeing how successful this single was, they thought, all right, maybe we should follow it up with an album, perhaps. Again, albums were thought of as a collection of singles. They thought, okay, let's come out with an album. So George Martin, he rushed the Beatles to come up with 10 more songs to, you know, fluff out the album a bit more, seeing as they only had the two singles Please Please Me and P.S. I Love You and the B-side, Ask Me Why. They only had those songs. So Martin first thought about recording live, actually, at the Cavern Club for this album, but he later decided that the club just wouldn't really work. So they booked a session at Abbey Road Studios, and they began recording the songs in a 13-hour period, trying to capture the authentic essence of their live sound from the Cavern Club repertoire that they had. So that's pretty much what this was. So Martin asked, hey, like, what do you have that can be put on this album? And the Beatles were like, um, our material from live shows. And so that's what Please Please Me is. You know what I mean? That's that's what the album is. So they go through, they record the songs and the session ended with the song Twist and Shout. And so by this point, John's voice is already shredded and it's already gone from recording for hours. Plus, he had a cold that day, and so uh, George Martin feared that John would ruin his voice if he kept going on, but John pushed through, and he was, like, screaming on the song, and that's where, you know, the famous version of Twist and Shout came from, where John is, like, screaming bloody murder, but 
hey, it works. You know, that's that's the great little story about that song. So before they decided on the album being titled Please Please Me, Martin considered using Off the Beatle track as the album title, but that was shelved and he actually used that later for an orchestral Beatle album instead. And yeah, I think Please Please Me is the better title of the two. So the famous cover photo was shot at EMI headquarters on 20 Manchester Square in London's West End. Martin initially had the idea of shooting the cover photo of the Beatles at the London Zoo, where they would stand in front of the insect exhibit. How apropos. But his request to the Zoological Society of London turned him flat down. They were like, "Uh uh-uh, no sir. So photographer Angus McBean was asked to take a color photograph of the group looking down over the stairwell, and that is what we know of it today. It was actually kind of a shock at the time that the album landed at the top of the charts, considering that the charts at the time were mostly dominated by more kind of adult tastes, like um, film soundtracks and easy listening vocals, that wow, a rock group like the Beatles could make it to the top of the charts. Like that was really different. And Please Please Me stayed at the top of the charts for 30 weeks. Oh, hell yeah. They were making some good money from this and they were getting really popular at this time. So Please Please Me was actually not released in the U.S. until two decades later on CD in 1987, which is kind of interesting. So their third single, From Me to You, went to the top of the charts and stayed there for 17 weeks. The fourth single, She Loves You, achieved the fastest sales of any record in the UK at the time, selling 750,000 copies in under four weeks. This newfound success brought on a lot of media exposure. The band reacted to the press in their typical comical attitude, not taking them seriously. And this attitude set a new precedent for the expectations of pop bands at the time. So the Beatles were really big trendsetters. They didn't subscribe to this kind of typical way of doing things. They wanted to do things their own way. They wanted to be their own person and they weren't going to let anyone tell them what and what not to do. So after they toured the album, the media coined the term Beatlemania to describe the frenzied, screaming, adoring fans that were accumulating and engulfing the Beatles. Like, at one point, the crowds got so rowdy that police had to be called in and they were spraying the crowds with hoses to control them. So this is where Beatlemania is in full-fledged. It's just pandemonium in the streets, everywhere, craziness. It's just, it's bad. So now we're going on to their second album with the Beatles. And they started to record this album from July through October 1963 in the midst of their Beatlemania. So they actually did the reverse order of what you would typically expect of a band to do. The album was released first, and then the singles followed after. So again, that's not the usual practice, but this is the Beatles, and they did things just a little bit different. None of the 14 songs on the album were even issued as singles, which was also different as well. 
So these singles were non-album singles. So this is where the cover of this album comes into play with the fact I told you before about John and George being photographed by Astrid on their trip back to Hamburg. And those shots in particular were the inspiration for this album cover. So Brian Epstein, he was impressed with photographer Robert Freeman and his work with black and white images in particular. Brian asked Robert to make the cover image for the album. George Harrison said that the album cover, this one in particular, was the first where they had creative input into the Beatles' artwork. So this was really big for them. They told Robert Freeman this is what they wanted the album cover to look like based on Astrid's photos, and that's how it came out. So to get that look, Robert took the photos in a dark alleyway at the Palace Court Hotel in Bournemouth. And to make sure that the image fit on the 12 by 12 album cover, he had to put Ringo on the bottom. And let me just say, it is so not organic looking at all that Ringo's the only one on the bottom. Like, okay, why don't you put like Paul or George underneath and have two on the top and two on the bottom? My OCD is not pleased with this album cover in the slightest because Ringo is the only one on the bottom and it looks so unbalanced, but whatever. That's what they did and that's what he did and that's the album cover. There you go. What's actually interesting about this, the original concept for this cover was to make the whole image fit the entire front section of the album cover. And typically how it was done back then was you would have the image, but that wasn't the main focus of the album because then you'd have all the text surrounding it, like the band name, the album name, like the record company, like all the different kind of bits of information on the record. They just wanted the image on the record. They didn't want any other bits of information. But EMI was like, hell no, we're not doing that. You have to put all the information on there having the image fit over the whole album cover is called Edge to Edge. They would have been the first band to do this Edge to Edge cover, but the Rolling Stones debut album five months later was the first one to feature an Edge to Edge cover. And with the Beatles was released November 22nd, 1963. It was the first Beatles album to be released in North America when it debuted in Canada on the 29th of November. By 1965, the album sold 1 million copies, and it remained at the top of the charts for 21 weeks. When writing the inner sleeve notes, the band's press officer used the phrase, the fabulous foursome, and this is where the press got the name for the Fab Four. The single that followed the release of With the Beatles was I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was recorded in October 1963, and it released that November on the 26th in the UK. It was the first Beatles track to be made using what's known as a four-track recording system. And so Capitol Records in America, they were kind of the, I don't want to say the sister company of EMI, but they were the American subsidiary. Is that the term I want to use for EMI? 
for a British band, you know, you want to sell your records across different countries. And so Capitol Records in America was having a hard time. Capitol was not a fan of the Beatles' music, and Brian Epstein had to encourage the Beatles to write a single just for the American audiences. Brian was like, listen, please, get the American audiences on our side. Do whatever the hell you gotta do. Talk about whatever you wanna talk about. Just write a song for the American audiences. And so that's how I Wanna Hold Your Hand came about. Paul wrote that, and the American audiences were like, yep, that's great. (laughs) The single stayed at the top of the charts in the UK for 20 weeks. And Brian had used his smooth way of talking to convince Capitol Records to take a chance on the Beatles. He's like, come on, you know the Beatles are big business. You gotta take them on. You gotta put them in the American radios. You gotta do what you gotta do. So Capitol was like, okay, fine. And they released I Wanna Hold Your Hand with I Saw Her Standing There as the B-side in America on December 26. It was initially going to be released later in 1964 to coincide with their planned show on the Ed Sullivan Show. However, We have to thank this 14-year-old fan, Marsha Albert, because she was the one that pushed the record company to releasing it sooner. She was the one that started it all. She was a fan. She heard the Beatles. She loved it. And she wrote to her local radio station to say, listen, the Beatles would be so popular here and you know it. So If you can somehow get your hands on the I want to hold your hand single and play it on the radio, that would be really nice. Thank you. Signed, Marsha Albert. And the DJ at the radio station, Carol James, saw this and he was like, wow, that's amazing. I have to do this. And so he got a copy of I want to hold your hand. He released it. He was the first one actually on the radio to release I Want to Hold Your Hand, and he introduced the Beatles for the first time in the U.S. on his radio show. Can you believe that? All thanks to fan Marsha Albert. Without her, we would not have the Beatles, as it were, at least sooner rather than later in 1964 as planned. So now, now that I Want to Hold Your Hand became so popular in America, now they're going over to the U.S., and it became a number one hit. The thing was, Paul has stated that he was adamant about the band not performing in America until they had a number one hit in the U.S. because he had seen a lot of British bands go over to the U.S. to try and break out into their music scene and they come home flops It just doesn't work. And he has seen it time and time again. And he knew if the Beatles went over to America too soon, that they probably would have failed. And so he was like, Brian, George Martin, we can't go over there. We have to wait. We have to keep waiting until we have a number one single in America. That's just how it is. And so when I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one, then they went to America. And they went to America February 7th, 1964. The Beatles landed to screaming fans. Upwards of 3,000 people and press were waiting for their arrival. And two days later, on the 9th of February, they performed their famous, 
first ever show on American television on The Ed Sullivan Show. And it was watched by 73 million viewers in 23 million households. I can't crunch the numbers on that, but that has to be at the time, what, like a third, maybe more of American households across the country? Like, what? That's crazy. That's so mind-blowing to me. So they were in America. They performed at various shows to large and adoring fans. And these live shows became marked as being the fucking worst, mostly because the fans were screaming the whole time and the Beatles could not hear a goddamn word. They couldn't hear themselves play or sing or nothing. They were just hearing screaming fans for half an hour. And can you imagine? There's no way. Like, that would have been so bad. And like people were fainting and trying to get on stage. Like, no, 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 no. Nay, nay, not good at all. So back home in England, seeing how successful the Beatles were in America, this inspired a lot of other UK bands to make their American debut. And the press coined the term, the British invasion. Wow, the press did it again. (laughs) They coined another term. Who would have seen it coming? Not me. So yeah, they coined the British Invasion, which is where all these British bands come over to America at this time, and uh, they made it big. So the Beatles' popularity, it gave way to a string of British beat groups like the Animals, the Kinks, and the Rolling Stones. This showed them that, hey, you can do this. You can come over to America, and you can follow in our footsteps, and you can make it. So they became really big pioneers of British bands to come over to America and see that, hey, you can do it. So now we're moving into their third album, A Hard Day's Night. And throughout most of 1963, Capitol Records' interest in the Beatles was noticeably waning. They weren't really keen on the Beatles. They weren't even keen on them in the first place, but they were already just waning their interest. And so a rival record label called United Artists actually encouraged their film division to offer the Beatles a three motion picture movie deal, mostly to increase the promotional sale of their music in the U.S., but it worked, didn't it? And so this is where the concept for A Hard Day's Night was born. And I have to say, if you haven't seen A Hard Day's Night, the film, you have to watch it. It's actually pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. It is pretty funny. I remember seeing this for the first time, not really knowing a whole lot about the Beatles back years and years and years ago, and I died laughing. It's really funny. So the concept is basically like the Beatles play themselves. It's a parody. It's a comedy. Um, They play themselves. They have this kind of shenanigan going on. Like Ringo has his own little side quest thing. It's pretty funny. And uh, yeah, that's where the movie came from. And how the term A Hard Day's Night came about was from Ringo. I guess Ringo has a way about mishmashing phrases and making it his own. So one day someone asked him like, oh, Ringo, you know, are you okay? Like, you look really tired today. And Ringo was like, yeah, I had a hard day's night. And so they were like, whoa, that is gold. We got to use that one. And they filmed from March to April in 1964. And it was actually on this film that George Harrison would meet his future wife, Patty Boyd. 
and she was playing the part of a schoolgirl. It was a short role, but she was a model. She was a model for um, most of her life. And so someone spotted her. They were like, hey, do you want to be in my movie? Sure. You know, and she took up this role. It was her first role in a film ever. And she didn't really know what to expect. And um, yeah, she saw George. She was like, oh, damn, he's cute. And he was like, oh, damn, she's cute. So he asked her out and she's like, oh, sorry, I have a boyfriend. (laughs) And so um, when they met up again to film more stuff, George was like, so how's your boyfriend? (laughs) Patty's like, oh, I dumped him. He's gone. And George was like, oh, bet. (laughs) Bet. Do you want to go on that dinner date now? And so that's how they ended up getting together. It was cute. So, A Hard Day's Night premiered in London and New York and was an international success. It was very, very popular. And so, to coincide with the movie, United Artists created a full soundtrack from the movie for the North American market. You know, this is what you expect of a soundtrack album, right? It's just songs that you compose for the movie and it gets put on an album. And that's what A Hard Day's Night is. Some people might not really like that album because it's a movie soundtrack, but I love it. Great, great songs. Honestly, really great songs. So side A of the album featured songs from the movie, and then side B featured new songs the group had written for themselves. But what's weird is Capitol Records has this thing where they would take side A and leave it, but then on side B, they would throw in these random instrumental songs from the Beatles. And this would be on Help as well and on the other films. It's like, what? Why would you just throw in random instrumental songs? I don't get it. America and how Capitol Records put out music like that for the Beatles was so weird, but that's what they did. So in the UK, side B was the new songs that the group had written that weren't in the, uh, in the film. And so that's where that comes about. So the album was released on July 10th, 1964. And the single that was released ahead of the album was Can't Buy Me Love and You Can't Do That was Side B. This was the first album that all of the songs were originals. Absolutely no covers to be seen on this one, which is different for them. United Artists really did their work here. They were like, we're making a movie for the American market and boom, they had a number one album. The album was noted by critics as being the first where the Beatles were coming into their own and evolving into what we know of them now. And I would have to agree, but this is the start though. I mean, you can't notice a huge difference, but at least in terms of Please Please Me and with the Beatles, yeah, it was a jump for sure. Now, they're huge. They're a huge act in America. They just came out with a film. America can't get enough of the Beatles. They need more. They need more. And so 1964 was the year for them. They went on a world tour. This was ambitious, but they did it. They went to Denmark, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. And then in August and September, they returned back to the U.S. with a 30 concert tour of 23 cities. They were working to the bone on this world tour. I can't stress that enough. It was like two, three shows sometimes a day in different venues. It was craziness. 
these shows had garnered between 10,000 and 20,000 fans for their half an hour performance all across America. Also, on this American trip, they meet Bob Dylan. Oh, Mr. Bobby Dylan in New York, okay? Bob was very popular at the time. He was one of the most well-known folk singers, and (laughs) Bob introduced them to cannabis, baby. Oh, yes. They were like, whoa, weed? We don't have this in the UK. And so they are toking it up. They're hanging out with Bobby D. They are loving it. There was actually a cool video of John and, and Bob Dylan in a limo. Hi. And they're just shooting the shit. They're having a good time. It's really, really cool. I would suggest watching it. It's pretty interesting. Um, But yeah, Bob Dylan opened their world. Weed is considered a gateway drug. I think everyone knows that. Bob was like, boom, introducing them to this new invigorating herb. And they were so jacked up on this. Um, But this is great because this meeting with Bob, Bob Dylan himself, and them partaking in weed had a big influence on the Beatles, not only themselves, but on their music from here on out. They come from two different worlds, two different fan bases. But when they came together in the U.S. and they hung out together and they formed a tight friendship, this kind of closed that divide between maybe the, uh, I don't want to use the word uptight for Bob Dylan's fans, but you know what I mean. Like Bob Dylan's very political, forward thinking, those kind of people, the people that are attracted to that kind of really progressive way of thinking back then. And then the Beatles and their Beatlemania. It's like two different worlds colliding, but it ended the separation and it merged those lines together where the Beatles had their beat music and Bob had his folk music. And so you can see it more, especially on the Help album and Rubber Soul, a little bit on Beatles for Sale, but a lot on Help and Rubber Soul where they really took influence from Bob Dylan and how he created music, not only lyrically, but also how he composed his music too. So it all kind of comes together in a nice melting pot. And that's where we are with the American tour. And so they go back to England, ready to go. And their fourth album, Beatles for Sale, posed a bit of a problem between their growing commercial success and their creative ambitions. The group wanted to keep this album to all originals, but they had used up all of their back catalog of songs that they had written, and they weren't able to create a lot of new material. So this album had a couple of covers on it sprinkled in with some of their original music. The usual upbeat tone from their other albums was absent on this album, though, also because they were exhausted from touring and they didn't want to create really happy, upbeat music. So this album is notably different in tone than their other albums before. These recording sessions for Beatles for Sale came up with two non-album singles, I Feel Fine and She's a Woman, two amazing tunes. I Feel Fine shows one of the first examples of using guitar feedback on a song ever, like for this kind of music ever. And a lot of this album was influenced by Bob Dylan. It was very influential, that meeting with Bob Dylan, and John Lennon really took a strong artistic difference now as he, you know, grew into his kind of Bob Dylan phase, if you will. 
So John started to write more personal songs aside from just, I met this girl and she's so pretty and we're going on a walk somewhere. Like he's more retrospective and he goes inwards to really tell his own story, which is really, really cool. And it was at this point that the songwriting process between John and Paul got more separate. Before, they would be in each other's company and they would write a lot of lyrics together. They would write all the tunes together in each other's presence. But at this point, it was kind of rare for them to write together. However, they would each bring bits and pieces into the studio and kind of mishmash them together, like Frankenstein them together. Beatles for Sale was considered to be their country and blues influence album, and I can see that for sure, not only with the album cover, but with the music itself for sure. Very different to what they had ever done before. So different because, again, they were influenced by that folky, bluesy style from Bob Dylan and what they heard in America at the time. They were just really soaking it up like a sponge. As they got more comfortable experimenting in the studio, George Martin also eased up on his authority role, and he gave the Beatles a lot more space to get creative. This experimentation resulted in the use of a fade-in on the song Eight Days a Week, which was the first song to use that technique ever. Typically, it was a fade-out on the end of a song. It was so rare, not even heard of, that you would hear a song start with a fade-in. It never happened. Eight Days a Week was the first one to do it. And this was also the first time that they implemented percussion instruments in their music. They tried using things like shakers and kettle drums, and they thought that using a less is more approach was the best way to go. And this is where George Harrison started to play around using his guitar sounds, starting to favor a Gretsch Tennessean guitar over his other guitar and the band would play around and they could do whatever they wanted you know creatively for the first time because the record company was strongholding them you know and of course they were sticking to what was popular at the time but they finally felt like they could branch out and really do what they wanted to do so this album is kind of a renegade but it works because it flows into help So I have a little bit of information on a few songs on here that I just wanted to note. One of my favorite songs on here, while it might be an underrated tune, I'll Follow the Sun, one of my favorites. This was originally a song that Paul wrote when he was 16 in the front parlor of his childhood house on Forthland Road. He shelved it because at the time he wrote it in the 50s, You know, they were Liverpool teddy boys and songs like that got pushed back. He thought I could never bring this song out because it's happy and it's poppy and I can't do that. But this is where Paul started to reach deep into his catalog and his mind and be like, oh yeah, I have this song that I wrote when I was 16. It would be great on this album. So that's what I'll follow the sun was. And eight days a week, the song. It got its title when one day, Paul was taking a ride to John's house, and he casually asked the driver, like, hey, you know, how's your day going? And the driver replied, oh, I'm working eight days a week. And Paul was like, got it. (laughs) Paul was like, John, I got it. So that's how eight days a week came about. Now, the song I'm a Loser, this was John's real first attempt at creating 
what Bob Dylan was known to come out with. You know, this song was saying, I'm a loser, uh, self-deprecating, very personal. And, you know, that's what Bob Dylan would do. Of course, Bob Dylan would do that all the time. So this was John's first attempt at creating something a lot more personal and moody and introspective. So the cover image was done again by Robert Freeman at London's Hyde Park. The only stipulation that Brian Epstein had about the cover was that it should be shot outside towards sunset. The cover had no band logo and the text wasn't the main focus of the album, which was different to how standard albums were made back then. They wanted to do this on with the Beatles. The, uh, the record company said no. This is the first time that it was implemented because the Rolling Stones did it first. Oops. Um, but that's where the album cover comes from. And the album was also different because it implemented the gatefold jacket for the first time. Instead of it just being a sleeve with the album in it, you could open the album and be like, wow, look at this, a whole new world inside. You can open it up. Wow. So they implemented the gatefold on this album. And Beatles for Sale released on December 4th, 1964. It held the top spot on the charts for 46 weeks. And the U.S. single, Eight Days a Week, and the B-side, I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, became their seventh number one single in the U.S. by March 1965. And the album didn't make it into the U.S. until it was released as a CD in 1987. So only a few of their early albums were released on Capitol in the U.S., and they just weren't doing that. They put out their singles, though, and they would come out with some compilation albums in the U.S. with their singles, but their albums, they were like, I can't be asked to do this. But, oh my goodness, that is the first part of my Beatles trilogy completed. I can check that off. Woohoo! That was a lot of information. I hope you learned something that you hadn't known about before. I'm just gonna cut it right here. I'm going to end it right here. I'm not going to go too in-depth about anything. That's just really what it is because I'm going to try to have this flow into the next episode. So I will see you guys next week with the second installment of my Beatles podcast. I hope you guys have an awesome day and I will talk to you guys later. Bye guys. <laughs>